Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this week, and thank you so much for joining us. I have uh, been taking my time to unpack a series that I'm calling Roadmap to Reformation. And we have been dealing with the 12 gates of Nehemiah and how they are an entrance into the new covenant. We have covered several of them, but we are right now talking about the horse gate. It is not an accident that Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday through the horse gate, but he comes riding not on a war horse, but on a donkey. One of the things that I think we need to understand, and I shared with you that out of Nehemiah 3, verse 27 and 28, it says this, it says, verse 27 and 28, it says, after them that the Kohites repaired another piece over against the great tower that lieth out even under the wall of Ophel. From above the horse gate repaired the priest, every one over against his house. The horse gate is mentioned in the context of the new covenant in Jeremiah, where he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel after those days. I'll write my laws on their hearts and on their minds and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Jeremiah chapter, that's chapter number 31, verses 23 through 40. Hebrews chapter 8 is a direct quote of that uh, same exact verse where he says, Behold, the days come, saith God, when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. And he goes on to say to them that they were no longer saved. The children's teeth are set on edge. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, he's alluding to the generational curses that were uh, a part of the old covenant paradigm. In the new covenant, we are not under any curse at all because Jesus was made a curse for us because the scripture tells us, blessed is our curse. I'm sorry, cursed is he that hangs on a tree. When Jesus said, I thirst, and they brought him a cup of vinegar, a hyssop, it was sour grapes. Jesus drank all the sour grapes that you had coming so that he could give you the new wine of the Holy Spirit. All of this is in the context of the new covenant. And then Jeremiah mentions in the last, and remember, Jeremiah is the prophet who prophesied of the carrying away captivity into Babylon. And he told them they would be in Babylon for 70 years. I've already laid this out quite a bit in the prior segments, but I showed you how the old covenant Jerusalem is called Babylon, the great harlot in Revelation 17 and 18. The centerpiece of Judaism, old covenant Israel and old covenant Jerusalem, he said in chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation, in her was found the blood of all the martyrs. That can only speak of one city, and that city was Jerusalem, Matthew 23. Jesus takes the finger and says to them that upon this generation will come the blood of all, the martyrs from the blood of Zacharias to the blood of, uh, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias, whom you slew between the porch and the altar. He points to that city that killed the prophets and slowed those who were sent to them, and he calls them Babylon. So the return from Babylon that I'm connecting this reformation to is yes, it includes what we see historically happen under Ezra and Nehemiah, but it is pointing to a greater fulfillment of restoration under Jesus, who restores to us a greater temple, 
which we are the temple of God, and a greater city, a new Jerusalem, the bride, the Lamb's wife, the community of faith, the new covenant people of God, whom he defines that in chapter, I mean, in Galatians 4. And I have dealt with these over and over, so you've got to watch the whole series to get this. But Galatians 4 talks about a tale of two cities. These two women are two covenants. And he points, especially if you read it in the Amplified Bible, in Galatians 4, it said that Jerusalem, which now is, is Mount Sinai in Arabia, is that's old covenant Jerusalem and is in bondage with her children today. But we're part of a messianic kingdom, the new Jerusalem. And so the reality of it is, is we're talking about restoration. We're talking about reformation. We're trying to, we're, we're declaring God is moving us from an old covenant to a new covenant paradigm. In that context, Jeremiah prophesies about, and he connects it, in that new covenant setting, he connects it to uh, uh, in the end of the at the end of the chapter at the end of chapter uh, in, in Jeremiah. Let me give you the exact verse twenty. Jeremiah thirty one. You get down to the end. It says, "Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the city shall be built to the Lord from the tower of Hananiah unto the gate of the corner, and the measuring line shall go out forth against it upon the hill of Gerub, and shall compass about to go up." And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes, and all the fields under the brook of Kidron, under the corner of the horse gate, toward the east, shall be holy unto the Lord, and it shall not be plucked up nor thrown down any more forever. So he begins to point towards this uh, horse gate, and he's saying that in those days, the days come, saith the Lord, that there, that the city will be built. Now, the city I'm talking about is not a physical city. Now, it was historically fulfilled with Ezra and Nehemiah. They did rebuild the city and they rebuilt the temple, but it was pointing towards prophetically a greater fulfillment. You say, well, how do you connect that? Because Zechariah, and that's how we're going to get here today. Zechariah starts out by saying there's a man whose name is called the branch and he's going to come. And then there's going to come a cornerstone. The capstone and the cornerstone are going to be laid with shouts of grace, grace to it. The cornerstone and the chief cornerstone and the capstone is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find him come on the scene in John 1, about verse 14, when he said, Moses gave you the law, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And grace and of his fullness have all we received. And grace for grace. That's the only place I know of in the scripture where there's a double enunciation of grace. Is that when Jesus shows on the scene, comes on the scene, he, he talks about moving away from Moses. Who gave you the law? The grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And he says, And of his fullness have all we received in grace for grace. I don't think it's an accident that even when Nehemiah comes into the city, the one of the very first things he restores in this Reformation is singers and worshipers. And what he starts to sing is, For the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. He begins to declare mercy and grace. I think there's going to even have to be a shift in our music as we move forward with Reformation. There's going to have to be a shout of grace. Grace, we can't keep on preaching doom and despair and think we're going to get anything other than doom and despair. I'm going to start preaching grace, grace to it. And that happened in the midst of chaotic times in Ezra and Nehemiah. As you move forward through the book of Zechariah, it said, he quotes again from Zechariah, he said, Behold, your king comes to you, riding upon an ass, the coat the fold of an ass. And then he says, return to me, you prisoners of hope, but I'm going to pull you out of a pit with no water in. And because of the blood of that covenant, I'm going to restore you. That scripture in Zechariah 9, 9 is fulfilled on Palm Sunday 
when Jesus come riding into the temple. And then you see a chapter or so later in Zechariah, he says, what will you give me to buy me out of the covenant? And they weighed out to me 30 pieces of silver. All of that is messianic prophecies that are pointing to yes, a fulfillment under Ezra and Nehemiah, but also to a greater fulfillment under the spiritual house of God that he's building, the spiritual city of God that he's building. And I want to connect, continue to connect those dots uh, today as we look at this. And so he comes into the city and he's not on a war horse. He comes riding upon the colt, the foal of an ass. Uh, I, 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 let, me, let me just let me let me chase this let me chase this rabbit just for a little bit on this. We might have to do more segments on the horse gate than I thought. But when I thought about, he, he doesn't come on a war horse. He comes on a, a colt. To fall. He comes. Your, your your king comes to you meek and lowly. The prophet Isaiah prophesied, "Said comfort ye, comfort ye, my people," saith the Lord. Now remember, if you go back to Isaiah, there's 66 uh, chapters in Isaiah. It's like a mini Bible. But the 40th chapter would be the opening of what, if you would look at the Bible, it would begin with the 40th chapter. And he starts talking about new covenant stuff. And in the 40th chapter of Isaiah, he opens by saying, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God, and tell her that her warfare is accomplished and that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for her sins. Remember, if you go back to the book of Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 9, it says that you have received double for your trouble. You've received double for your sin. When did you receive double for it? You received it in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He took all of your judgment. If you are in Christ, your judgment is not in the future, and you can comfort comfort my people and tell her her warfare is accomplished. Again, just like I showed you, he drank sour grapes to redeem us from the curse of, of, of generational curses. And every curse, as far as that goes, because when he drank the cup on Calvary Street, said, I thirst, and they brought him sour grapes. Now, I want you to see that in Isaiah, he said, Comfort ye, my people, tell her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received double for all her sin. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's the exact wording Matthew 3 uses when John the Baptist is about to introduce Jesus who is the Messiah of the kingdom. Oh man, I get so excited about how all this stuff connects. But he's literally quoting, Jesus literally quotes, or the scripture quotes him in Matthew 3 when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the highway a desert for our, a, a desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight in the rough places, Plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So when Jesus comes riding into the sea, or when Jesus comes to be introduced by John the Baptist, there's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Let me just say very quickly that this book, titled From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift, is, I believe, a very important book to get because this book is from Matthew 3. And the whole message of John is repent, which means change your mind for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, a change of government brings a change of government. You are moving from the government of law. You are changing your mind and repenting from an old covenant paradigm to a new covenant paradigm. And uh, what happens is the kingdom replaces the law. This is a powerful book that marries the gospel of grace with the gospel of the kingdom. Because in the Matthew 
tells you Moses, he talks about moving from wall to grace, but he tells you that uh, there's one coming after you that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and uh, with fire whose fan it is, is in his hand. The Holy Spirit is the governor in the new covenant. The Holy Spirit governs our life. And Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's name means the comforter, and Nehemiah ultimately becomes the governor of the city. You see what he's saying, Dr. I'm, I'm trying to tell you when the Holy Spirit becomes the governor of your life and not rules on rocks, you're governed by the Holy Spirit. They that are led by the Spirit are sons of God, not they that are led by rules or by tradition or by church government, but those that are led by the Spirit, the government of heaven set up and established in our hearts. And so that's the Holy Spirit, and he's connecting that warfare with being accomplished with John the Baptist announcing Jesus. You say, well, what's that got to do with warfare? Because the 11th chapter of Matthew says this. He said, all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. The Message Bible says it culminated with John. And up until then, Violent men seize the kingdom by force. In other words, that culminated with John. And then he comes down in the latter part of Matthew 11. And he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The message Bible says it like this. Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Walk with me. Work with me. See how I do it, and I will teach you the unforced rhythm of grace. I'm not trying to advertise books here today, but this book was written from that text. The unforced rhythms of grace. This is another powerful book. But in John's gospel, he says that up until John, violent men seized the kingdom by force. See, a lot of people were disappointed when Jesus comes riding in on a donkey instead of a war horse. They are expecting someone from a messianic line to come on the scene who is the son of David who's going to lead a revolt against the Romans and bring swords and spears and bring them back to the glory days of David. But Jesus said, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. Therefore, my kingdom is not of this world. But just because his kingdom is not of this world does not mean that it's not for this world. Because the kingdom of God is the government of heaven that's orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me say this, because I have preached the kingdom uh, pretty much my entire ministry career, which is about 41 years of full-time traveling ministry. And so in some of the early days, I thought, well, the kingdom is going to come by taking over the government. Now, let me just say this. I do believe politics are important, but my audience is way too big to get involved in politics. And I do believe that when the righteous reign, the people rejoice, and I think it's important to vote and all of that. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying about this. But what I'm saying is, is that the kingdom does not come from the White House. Let's say this. Let's say that, that we believe, let's say that if we did believe that the kingdom was going to come through government, that the Christians are going to take over the government, and we're going to pass the laws that we want to make people behave. If the kingdom came through passing laws, Moses already had the perfect law. He had the commandments, the perfect law. The law of the Lord was perfect. But the law 
did not produce the kingdom because the end of the law was there's none righteous, no, not one. And when Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees and scribes, when will the kingdom come? He said the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Neither shall they say, lo, here it is, or lo, there it is, for the kingdom of God is within you. Now, let me just say this to you. What he's saying there is, the kingdom of God is not coming through natural, outward, open display. In other words, it's not coming through military power, might, or the running of the sword, or through political powers. But even more specifically, this word observation is used, again, in the book of Galatians, where the apostle Paul says, I am afraid of you. Because you have went back up under the law and you are teaching, you are observing. He uses the word observances. He uses the word, you observe feasts and months and laws. What he's simply saying is that you're trying to get the kingdom of God through the observances of old covenant rituals. But the kingdom of God is not coming through the observances of laws and rules and rituals. The kingdom of God is coming because the Holy Spirit takes up his abode within you. Now make no mistake about it. When the Holy Spirit takes up his abode in you, it will change your behavior. But to pass laws to make people to say, okay, we're going to take over the government and we are going to rule from the government. The kingdom of God is going to take over by political power. You've got to look back at history and say, hey, that's the reason the pilgrims came to the United States to start away. Uh, start with again is because the church and the king was the head of the church. And the pilgrims came here to get away from the bondage of religious tyranny. And so I would say to you, if you think the church is going to take over the government and run the government, which church do you want to run it? Do you want the Catholics to run it? The Pentecostals to run it? Do you want the holiness to run it? Do you want, in other words, depending on which church you go to, what rules they want to legislate. The kingdom of God cannot be legislated. The kingdom of God has to come because the king himself comes and takes up his abode within you. That's what he's talking about when he said the kingdom is not going to come through violence. It's not, tell, comfort ye my people and tell them for warfare is accomplished. Behold, your kings come to you, meek, lowly, riding upon a colt, the fold of an ass. And he comes to introduce a new covenant that says, here's the covenant that I'm going to make. I'm going to write my law on your heart. And your sins and iniquities, I remember no more. And no one will need to teach you, for all will know me from the least of the greatest. That doesn't mean we don't need teachers or people to feed us and minister to us. It means that you won't need anybody to teach you the law anymore. That you're going to, that when you know the Lord and you come into this new covenant, you know, and this, this word, even when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem, uh, riding upon this donkey, not a war horse, but he comes riding on a donkey. Uh, they cry to him, Hosanna in the highest, which literally means save us now. Save us now. Somebody crying out, Lord, help us in the midst. And all of this stuff happened in the midst of Roman occupation and a season of great chaos that your king comes to you riding upon a colt to fold of an ass. And he comes to a place where uh, he's fulfilling the prophecies of Zechariah. So we understand that our warfare has been accomplished. And we understand that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We find in Revelation chapter 19 that uh, 
when he, uh, he that he comes with a sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. So the way he makes war in the new covenant is not with physical swords and spears. He does it with the sword of his mouth. And in Hebrews 4, the sharp two-edged sword is the word that flows from rest. The word Hebrews, the fourth chapter says, it says simply this, it says, labor to enter into rest. And then it says, for the word of God is quick, which means life-giving and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder between soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thought and the intent of the heart. Neither is any creature which is not naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So the context of the sharp two-edged sword there is entering into rest. So it's not just any word that's life-giving and powerful and sharp. It's the word that flows from rest that's life-giving and powerful and sharper because it discerns uh, between thought and intent of the heart. In other words, the word that flows from rest will reveal what's really in your heart. The sword that is in his mouth in Revelation 21, or I'm sorry, Revelation, yes, chapter 19, is a sharp two-edged sword that he smites the nations with. In other words, the message that's flowing from his mouth is a message of the new covenant and a rest that will literally reveal what's in your heart. One of the things I've really emphasized in preaching the gospel of grace is from that viewpoint in Hebrews where he talks about in the fourth chapter, labor to enter into that rest. And he goes on to say again that the word of God is sharp. The word that flows from rest is sharp. It's quick. It's life-giving. It is powerful. But he goes on to say that it divides asunder between soul and spirit. And it is a discerner of the thought and the intent of the heart. Either there's any preacher which is not naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so what I want you to see is that then he goes on to say, but we can come boldly to the throne of grace, not a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of trouble. And you will find a faithful high priest who's been touched with the feelings of your infirmity. Here's what happens when you hear the word that flows from rest and the gospel of grace and the fact that God is not mad with you and you're not up under a curse and the judgment of God is not on you every time you turn around. What happens is, is you will discover what's really in your heart. In other words, if you quit giving once you found out you're not under the law, then it was never in your heart to give to start out with. If you find other things in your heart once you hear a message like this, that makes you want to go do something stupid, then that was in your heart to start out with. But now I'm not suggesting that you go act on the stuff that's in your heart that's not of God, because it might, you, God won't leave you, but your wife might, and then you have two house payments, child support. Maybe you, what's in your heart is you want to give yourself to substance abuse, and the first thing you know, you're laying in a gutter, and God hadn't left you, but now you're in jail, your life is messed up, and the reality of it is, is that what God is after is not just your actions. He's after what's in your heart. And so what's when, when, when I, the reason I believe that this message of grace, mercy, and the finished work is so powerful is because it's the only climate where real change can take place. I have had more real, genuine change in the climate of freedom than I ever had under law and legalism. Law can make you behave, but grace will transform your heart. 
you know, uh, law will conform you. Grace will transform you. The difference is, yeah, change is inevitable. It's how that change occurs. Because if you keep people under fear and tyranny, you can get them to behave in certain ways. But once the heart has been established in grace, and we're open before him who we have to do, and we say, God, I need to see the purpose of the law is not a ladder you climb to get to God to get his approval. It's a wall you run into that says, I need a savior. It's what makes you cry, Hosanna, save us now. And if you don't realize you need a savior, see what happens is even in the climate of grace and freedom, there's a lot of stuff that's in your heart that will be revealed. But once what's in your heart is revealed, then you can come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy. And you will find grace to help in the time of trouble and a faithful high priest who has been touched with the feelings of your infirmities. And he was able to succor us in the time of trouble. He's able to change us. So the warfare is accomplished. What he's trying to show you is the battle has been won. God is not at war. He's defeated all of his enemies. And I think last but not least, he's showing them that the kingdom is not coming. That's what he's declaring through John. All of that culminates. It's not coming with war horses. It's not coming with that. It's coming. It doesn't come through. Uh, it doesn't come through violence. Up until then, violent men took the kingdom by force. I think it even includes spiritual warfare because I'm going to tell you, you've not been called to, to join an army. You've been invited to a wedding. That's a whole lot different. You're not. You're not going to war. The battle's already been won. Now I believe there's a victory that is to be enforced. But what he's trying to simply say to us is. Your warfare is accomplished. All of that culminated with John. And from up until then, violent men seized the kingdom. And we see that even down through history with the Inquisitions and, and different wars down through history that were holy wars. We must beat our sworded weapon into plowshare and learn the unforced rhythm of grace. Well, we're just about ready to run out of time here, but I, I want you to see that culminate with John. And he rides in on a donkey. So, uh, we're going to pick up back on this. I'm going to stay with this until I finish saying what I need to say about this horse gate. And because I got so much I want to say yet again. So uh, join us again next week at the same time for, uh, you know, as I continue this series. But let me take a few moments to just ask you to consider becoming a partner with our ministry. If you've been watching us for some time, let me tell you, there's not a lot of support that comes through television. It comes through partners and our partner base. And we need to build our partner base, and we really do need your help to be able to stay on the air. The cost of our programming was increased incredibly on this network, and we had to actually drop one network because uh, of the increase in cost. But we reach 140 million U.S. homes through just this network. So if you'd like to become a partner with us and help us to take the gospel around the world through this avenue, through our traveling ministry, through our YouTube channel, and all that we do, our message of the month club that you can join on our website, Please go to my website. The easiest way to do this is to go to my website. It's on the screen. And there is a place where you can give via credit card or debit card through our PayPal pal there. And you can also sign up for a monthly debit if you'd like to become a monthly partner. We really need some monthly partners. Or you can call the number on the screen. Someone will take your call. No one answers. Leave a message. We'll get back to you. And also, you can give via a check or money order by writing to the address on the screen. But do that today. God bless you. Thanks for joining us. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. 
In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.